Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. The only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Nearly 100 are killed in blasts at a commemorative procession in Iran. Harvard President Claudine Gay resigns. A Hamas official is killed in Lebanon. The U.S. extends its military presence at a Qatari base. India's top court rejects a new fraud probe into the Adani Group. The U.S. national debt tops $34 trillion for the first time in history. The U.S. House Committee moves forward to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. A court rules Texas can ban emergency abortions. 48% of British teens report feeling addicted to social media. And a scientist's study say a so-called exercise plasma can be used to treat Alzheimer's. In our top story, news from Iran as deadly explosions strike a Soleimani ceremony. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Al Jazeera, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. Two bombs exploded in Iran during a ceremony commemorating the fourth year since former Iranian General Qasem Soleimani was killed by a U.S. drone strike in Iraq. According to Iranian officials, at least 95 people were killed and more than 200 injured by Wednesday's explosions, with numbers being revised by Iranian officials. Iran said the explosions, which occurred near Soleimani's gravesite in the southeastern city of Kerman, roughly 820 kilometers or 510 miles away from the capital, Tehran, were a, quote, terrorist attack, but didn't provide any potential causes. The two bombs went off one after the other, with three paramedics reportedly being killed as they rushed in to help after the first blast. Iranian officials reportedly said the bombs were placed in bags on the side of the road and went off via remote control during the procession of people headed towards Soleimani's tomb. Video footage showed thousands of people walking in the procession as prayers from the Quran played. The first explosion reportedly went off roughly 700 meters or 2,300 feet from the gravesite, with a second one detonating one kilometer or 0.62 miles away. This reportedly infers that the bags did not travel through a screening checkpoint. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi didn't blame anyone specific for the bombings, only noting that, quote, the perpetrators and criminals who were involved in this terrorist crime will soon be identified and punished. While some other Iranian officials accused the U.S. and Israel, U.S. Department of State spokesman Matthew Miller denied the claims on behalf of both countries. This came a day after senior Hamas leader Saleh al-Arori was killed in an attack in Beirut, Lebanon on Tuesday. Lebanese officials blamed Israel for the attack and accusations that Israel has declined to comment on. Eric, thank you for the facts on that tragic story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins related to it with an anti-Iranian narrative provided by the Times of Israel. This is likely another example of Iranian nationals using terrorism to fight against the brutal regime. Following decades of oppression, Iran has unfortunately experienced a growing number of militant groups using violence as a means to put pressure on the authoritarian state. The world should not look at the West or Israel, but rather the numerous armed and exiled groups whom Tehran has persecuted in the past. Violence in Iran, sadly, has been a self-fulfilling prophecy due to a repressive regime. Follow that with a pro-Iran narrative coming from Islamic Republic News Agency. As the enemies of Iran continue to instigate violence against the country and its people, Tehran knows who they are and where to find them. 
This evil act will be investigated thoroughly and its perpetrators swiftly brought to justice. Terrorism is a means of political action and has never won over the hearts of Iranians. And this time will be no different. This means investigating and bringing to justice actors both domestic and foreign. And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community have a statistics-based nerd narrative to share with us. They think that there's a 29% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before 2025. Claudine Gay has resigned as the president of Harvard. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Fox News, Independent, Daily Wire, and Business Insider. Harvard President Claudine Gay, the first black leader of the school, on Tuesday resigned her position in the face of allegations that she plagiarized several academic writings and weeks after her controversial testimony in front of the U.S. Congress about campus anti-Semitism. Gay, who denied plagiarizing any works, said in a statement that she was distressed over her, quote, comments to confronting hate and upholding scholarly rigor, being challenged by critics. In a statement, the Harvard Corporation said it accepted Gay's resignation with, quote, great sadness. It thanked her for her service and commended her remarkable resilience in the face of sustained personal attacks. U.S. Representative Elise Stefanik, the Republican from New York, who, as a member of the committee that questioned Gay, elicited a response that made headlines about the consequences of anti-Semitic rhetoric on campus, took credit for Gay's departure. In a press statement, she wrote, I will always deliver results. Gay had told the Congressional Committee that the use of certain terms about harming Jews and Israel was abhorrent, but added that it had to be put into context to determine whether the university could punish students who uttered such words. Alan M. Garber, an economist and physician, has been named Harvard's interim president during a search for a full-time replacement for Gay. Garber has been Harvard's provost and a professor of economics, public policy, and healthcare policy for more than 12 years. Adam, thanks for the facts. We begin the round of spins with a right narrative coming from PJ Media. It's about time that Gay, a serial plagiarizer who made deeply concerning remarks about anti-Semitism, was held accountable. Her feckless response to the hate running rampant on her campus should have gotten her canned long ago. But this is what we've come to expect from the leftist institutions of indoctrination that pass themselves off as institutions of higher learning. More must be done to clean abhorrent ideologies out of America's university administrations. Eric, I'm going to counter that with a left narrative provided by Mother Jones. The right's bad faith crusade against diversity in education and its attempt to undermine and eventually remove every black leader who's elevated to a higher position has taken another victim. Harvard has set a bad example by caving and allowing Gay to step down, but there's still an opportunity to fight back against these attacks and, in turn, continue the fight to integrate people from the marginalized communities into the power structure of these institutions. A Hezbollah leader responds to the killing of a Hamas deputy chief. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Lorient Today, The Guardian, Axios, and Reuters. Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah said in a speech on Wednesday that Israel's killing of the deputy chief of Hamas's political bureau, Saleh al-Arori, in Beirut on Tuesday was a, quote, dangerous act that required a response. Nasrallah also said that Israel suffered a strategic defeat in the region since the October 7th attack, and Hezbollah is not afraid of an all-out war with Israel, adding that it is willing to fight with, quote, no limits 
Nasrallah also claimed that the U.S. was fueling the war in Gaza and preventing a ceasefire. Nasrallah said that the Palestinian cause had been revived and support for Hamas among Palestinians had increased. He also went on to state that Hamas acted independently and the October 7th attack was a, quote, Palestinian operation of which we were not aware. Though Nasrallah did specify that he did not intend to distance Hezbollah from the attack with these comments, Nasrallah also said that the war had been, quote, the greatest challenge to the resistance in recent months, and Hezbollah was fighting Israel on the border with, quote, precise calculations. The U.S. Department of State said that it was, quote, incredibly concerned that the war in Gaza may escalate and spread to other fronts, while denying that the U.S. nor Israel were involved in an attack on Iran on Wednesday that killed at least 103 people. The State Department's statement also said that Israel did not give the U.S. any advance notice regarding the Tuesday strike in Beirut that killed Al-Arori. The State Department spokesman Matthew Miller condemned on Tuesday comments made by two far-right Israeli ministers, Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich and National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, that called for Palestinians to be removed from the Gaza Strip and for Jewish settlers to return to the enclave. Miller said that several Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, repeatedly clarified that Smotrich and Ben-Gvir's statements did not represent Israeli policy, adding that Gaza will remain, quote, Palestinian land, but without Hamas in control. An anonymous U.S. official said on Tuesday that the U.S. intelligence agencies believed that Hamas, alongside other Palestinian militant groups, used Al-Shifa Hospital as a command center and a place to hold Israeli hostages but evacuated the hospital a few days before Israeli forces entered it. The evidence on which they based their assessment was not disclosed. Israel's November assault on the hospital sparked global concern, with the World Health Organization last month describing the hospital's emergency department as resembling a bloodbath, while Hamas denied that it had operated in al-Shifa. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 22,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start a round of narrative spins that begins with the pro-establishment narrative provided by CNN. Though, of course, Israel has a right to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities and defend itself from terror, regional escalation is simply not in the interest of the U.S. or Israel. A war with Hezbollah and Lebanon would be a disaster and likely spiral into an all-out regional war with Iran. Israel should focus on extricating Hamas from the Gaza Strip in a humane way and eliminating Hamas's leadership. Jerusalem Post follows that with a pro-Israel narrative. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a terrorist army with far greater military capabilities than Hamas, and Israel cannot allow its citizens residing in the north to live under the constant threat of terrorist attacks. The UN resolution that ended the 2006 war with Hezbollah has failed to ensure Israel's security, and if some sort of new arrangement is not made, Israel will be forced to intervene. The spin's going to continue with Al-Mayadeen providing a narrative C. Hezbollah will deal with Israel's belligerent and aggressive behavior at a time it deems most advantageous, as the Lebanese resistance does not just react to security incidents but makes painstaking calculations to both deter Israel from violating Lebanon's sovereignty and avoid unnecessary and destructive escalation. Israel, backed by the U.S., is committing atrocious crimes in Gaza in which Hezbollah has been forced to respond. 
And Metaculus is going to wrap up this marathon of narratives with their nerd narrative. They say there's a 0.2% chance that Lebanon will come under French rule again before 2025. According to a recent report, the U.S. has reached a deal to extend its military presence at Qatar base. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, Al-Arabia, Israel National News, Sputnik International, and The Cradle. CNN reported on Tuesday citing three U.S. defense officials and another source allegedly familiar with the matter that Washington has reached an agreement with Doha to extend its military presence at Qatar's Al-Udid Air Base for another 10 years. Reuters also reportedly corroborated information about the extension through an anonymous source. The base located in the desert southwest of Doha reportedly hosts the largest U.S. military facility in the Middle East. Though Qatar and the U.S. have reportedly agreed not to announce the extension publicly, sources told Al Arabia English that the fresh deal will entail a greater Qatari investment into the base facilities. The initial agreement was set to expire at the end of 2023. This comes as U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Al-Udid last month, thanking Qatar for their support and increased financial contribution to the facility that has been a key hub for air operations in and around Afghanistan, Iran, and throughout the Middle East. The airbase that can accommodate more than 10,000 American troops became the main U.S. Central Command airbase in the region in 2003, when personnel and equipment were relocated from the Prince Sultan base in Saudi Arabia. A major non-NATO U.S. ally, Qatar, has broken talks between Taliban-appointed Afghan officials and the White House and between Israeli officials and Palestinian militant groups, as well as a successful prisoner exchange between Iran and the U.S. Adam, thank you for the facts. Stars and Stripes has our first spin. It's a pro-establishment narrative. Over the past 20 years, American operations across the Middle East have shown the importance of the U.S. military footprint in Qatar. Therefore, it's highly positive that the U.S. will be able to continue operating out of al-Udid for another decade, especially amid escalating conflicts with the Iranian-backed militias and regional instability in general. The establishment critical narrative provided by 1945. Though America should have been adjusting its overseas basing to be able to address current needs, Washington apparently is unable to abandon a framework that worked in the past. It's certain that al-Udid was an asset to fight the Taliban but it's unlikely that Doha will ever allow the U.S. to use the base in any operation against Iran and its proxy militias. Metaculus has a nerd narrative. They say there's an 8% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. India's top court refuses a new fraud probe into Adani Group. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Indian Express, Mint, NDTV, Hudistan Times, and CNN. India's Supreme Court on Wednesday refused to establish a panel to aid an ongoing probe by the country's market regulator into allegations of fraud by billionaire Gautam Adani's business group. Instead, the court gave the Securities and Exchange Board of India, or SEBI, three months to complete its investigations into short-seller Hindenburg's reports of, quote, brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud scheme by Adani. In March 2023, the Indian Supreme Court ordered SEBI to probe the alleged violations by Adani, as well as set up a six-member panel headed by a former judge to look into the matter. Adani has denied all charges. In May 2023, the court-appointed panel concluded there was no failure on SEBI's part 
The market regulator has so far probed 22 of the 24 allegations made by the U.S.-based Hindenburg firm. On Monday, the Supreme Court said there was no valid ground to doubt the SCBI probe, dismissing newspaper reports and third-party inferences as credible evidence. Following Wednesday's ruling, Adani tweeted, quote, truth has prevailed. He also thanked those who had supported him during the crisis, claiming that, quote, India's growth story will continue. Thanks, Eric. The pro-establishment narrative starting off the spins is provided by NDTV. SEBI is a competent and well-respected authority, and Hindenburg's allegations should not be taken at face value. The Supreme Court's own panel has reiterated its confidence in India's market regulator and, in this case, the agency must be allowed to do its job. If Adani's has engaged in illegal behavior, SEBI will expose the group and act against them. Neither overenthusiastic litigation nor witch hunt is the answer. The establishment critical narrative comes from the Indian Express. There is more than enough evidence pointing to regulatory lapses on SEBI's part. India's money laundering watchdog had informed the market regulator of several shady transactions in the run-up to Hindenburg's disclosures, but nothing was done. The situation is further clouded by the fact that a former SEBI chief has joined an arm of Adani's company. The institution's very integrity is under question. And the nerds think that there's a 27% chance of the Adani Group regaining a total market capital of $50 billion before 2028. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. According to the latest data from the U.S. Department of the Treasury, total public debt in America has reached $34 trillion for the first time in history. As of December 29, 2023, intragovernment debt, debt the federal government owes to itself, had reached almost $7.1 trillion, while debt held by the public, all debt outside of the U.S. government, less Federal Financing Bank or the FFB securities, sat at $26.9 trillion. The Treasury's latest data sees a rise of 8.5% since December 29, 2022, approximately $2.7 trillion, when total public debt sat at $31.3 trillion. In this period, debt held by the public rose by 10.1%, approximately $2.5 trillion from $24.5 trillion, while intragovernmental debt rose by 3.1%, approximately $213 billion from $6.9 trillion. Prior to the COVID pandemic, a Congressional Budget Office report from January 2020 predicted debt to reach 180% of GDP by 2050. More recently, the office's Budget and Economic Outlook report for 2023 to 2033, published last February, predicted a federal budget deficit of $1.4 trillion, as well as gross federal debt of $32.4 trillion in 2023. In June 2023, Republican lawmakers and Congress reached an agreement with the White House to temporarily lift the U.S. debt limit until January 2025. U.S. debt now equates to approximately $100,000 per person. Adam, thank you for presenting the facts. We begin our round of spins with a Republican narrative coming from The Federalist. The White House continues to act as if throwing money at every problem is a solution. Biden administration's abysmal deficit record is only superseded by the effects of the COVID pandemic. Democrats are failing the American people by plunging the country further and further into debt through unpopular spending decisions, which could eventually lead to America's economic collapse unless reckless spending is curtailed. Both parties are to blame due to bad beltway habits, but the Democrats have been unscrupulous. 
And Republican narratives are typically followed up with Democratic narratives. We've got one here provided by Guardian. The Republicans are using bad faith rhetoric when it comes to U.S. debt. Historically, U.S. debt has spiraled because of Republican-led tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy, most recently spearheaded by the Trump administration. Income inequality must be addressed, and the rich must be taxed fairly. Republicans must acknowledge that's the real root of the country's financial problems. According to the nerds at Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the U.S. national debt will reach $50 trillion by December of 2029. The U.S. House Committee is set to begin the Mayorkas impeachment proceedings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, NPR Online News, CNN, Guardian, and Fox News. Republicans from the U.S. House of Representatives are moving forward with steps to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas over his alleged mishandling of issues surrounding the U.S.-Mexico border. The House Homeland Security Committee has announced it will hold its first impeachment hearing titled, quote, Havoc in the Heartland, How Secretary Mayorkas's Failed Leadership Has Impacted the States. The hearing comes after the House held a vote to impeach Mayorkas in November. The vote failed when eight Republicans sided with Democrats to instead refer the vote to the Homeland Security Committee. A spokesperson for the House Committee on Homeland Security said in a statement about the impeachment hearing that an investigation into Mayorkas's handling of and role in the unprecedented crisis at the southwest border has been going on for nearly a year, and the findings of these investigations will be released at the upcoming hearings. Mayorkas has said that he will fully cooperate with the impeachment investigation in addition to executing his current duties. Border authorities say that migrants crossed the U.S.-Mexico border in unprecedented numbers in 2023, with Customs and Border Patrol reporting over 276,000 migrant crossings in December alone, a monthly record. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We're going to start the spins with a Democratic narrative provided by Guardian. A bipartisan vote to impeach Mayorkas already failed showing that both parties reject this baseless GOP witch hunt. There is no reason Mayorkas should be impeached and all efforts to do so are a gross waste of time and taxpayer money. Many more important homeland security issues could benefit from the attention that this stunt is getting. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. There is a crisis occurring at the United States' southern border. Mayorkas has failed to deal with this and uphold his oath of office, and he should be held accountable for that. As Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas's flawed decision-making and refusal to enforce laws passed by Congress caused the immigration situation in the U.S. to grow out of control. There must be accountability. And the nerds of Metaculus are going to stop this spin. They think that there is a 25% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the House of Representatives, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Our next story comes out of Texas, where their courts have ruled that abortions are not required under emergency guidance. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Time, the Texas Tribune, and Reuters. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday rejected the Biden administration's appeal of a district court ruling that prevented enforcement of the administration's emergency care law guidance that said hospitals must provide abortion services if the mother's life is at risk. Texas, which has banned most forms of abortion since the U.S. Supreme Court ended the federal right to abortions in 2022, joined with abortion opponents in suing to stop the guidance, which the administration took from the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or the EMTALA, of 1986. Hospitals must provide treatment to stabilize a patient with an emergency medical condition. The guidance specified this would include abortions at hospitals that receive Medicare. In authoring the ruling, 
Judge Kurt D. Engelhart wrote that the EMTALA doesn't entitle a pregnant woman to obtain an abortion and it doesn't mandate medical treatments or preempt Texas law. This decision comes a month after the Texas Supreme Court ruled against a woman seeking an emergency abortion because of a non-viable pregnancy. Meanwhile, the court is handling a lawsuit from 22 women seeking clarification of the medical exceptions in Texas's abortion law. Those were the facts, and now we've got spins, starting with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe, it returned the power to regulate abortions to the states. Federal guidance doesn't supersede state law in this or any other matter. Texas's abortion law contains exceptions to protect the life of the mother, but the federal government doesn't have the right to mandate hospitals to perform specific medical procedures. We're going to counter that with a Democratic narrative provided by Washington Post. America should be outraged at how this ruling disregards the safety of women in life-threatening situations related to their pregnancy. This ruling essentially prevents hospitals from acting swiftly during an emergency lest they perform an abortion that doesn't meet the state's vague standards necessary for an exception to its abortion ban. This is shameful. According to the Metaculous Prediction community, there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before the year 2030. According to a recent study, 48% of British teens feel addicted to social media. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Evening Standard, Wales Online, Daily Mail, Guardian, and First Post. According to the University of Cambridge researchers' analysis of data from the Millennium Cohort Study, nearly half of British teenagers feel they have become addicted to social media platforms. The study, carried out by Center for Longitudinal Studies at the University of London, examined the lives of more than 18,000 children born in the UK between 2000 and 2001. When the cohort was aged between 16 and 18, they were quizzed about their social media use. About 48% of the 7,000 respondents agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, saying, quote, I think I'm addicted to social media. The total number of respondents who said that they felt addicted included a higher proportion of girls at 57% compared to boys at 37%. While the researchers insisted that the children's self-perceived social media addiction isn't akin to drug addiction, with many respondents feeling that they have lost control over their use of digital interactive media, researchers claim that it does indicate a problematic relationship with social media use. The study comes as multiple U.S. school districts sue social media giants. This study comes as multiple U.S. school districts sue social media giants, including Meta, ByteDance, Alphabet, and Snap, accusing the firms of deliberately making their platforms addictive for children. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start this round of Narrative Spins with a Narrative A provided by New York Times. Social media companies have been knowingly enticing and ensnaring young people with their algorithms and misleading the public about the substantial, addictive, and compulsive dangers of their platform's use, all for profit. Tech giants must pay restitution and develop ways to make their social media products safer for children. Verge gives us narrative B. Social media companies generally have robust safety policies and parental controls. They are committed to providing children with age-appropriate, safe, and positive experiences, even though they aren't legally liable for harm caused by their platforms. Importantly, more study is needed to determine what real digital addiction is and what the signs and consequences could be. Huffington Post is going to continue the spin with a narrative C. While the vast power social media companies have acquired is regulated by anemic federal oversight, parents should have greater control over their teenage and adolescent social media use. 
social media companies may or may not bend their knees, which is why parents must become their offspring's first line of defense. There's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculus once again. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 72% of the world population will use the internet in 2025. And in our final story today, scientists are exploring Alzheimer's therapy based on exercise plasma. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian and Alzheimer Europe. A hospital in Norway is testing the effects of XPLOS, an exercised plasma, which is where the blood of young and healthy adults who exercise regularly is injected into older adults in early stages of Alzheimer's. Scientists hope the results to be available in 2025 will show that XPLOS can strengthen the minds and bodies of older people and maybe even the general population living sedentary lives. The blood plasma taken from healthy, fit men will be injected into patients 12 times in one year. They will be selected at random to receive either X-plus octoplasma, a blood-specific solution containing human plasma proteins, or a placebo. During the study, patients will be tested on their daily recollection, recognition, executive function, and fluency skills. Study patients must also have an MMSE, Mini Mental State Examination Score of 20, which shows their memory impairment is mild to moderate, as well as have evidence of abnormal accumulation of amyloid and tau in their brain, which are evidence of Alzheimer's. They will also require a study partner to stay in contact with them and participate in the study throughout its duration. This follows the 2012 discovery by Harvard Medical School's Christine Ran of a hormone called irisin, which is produced by muscles during exercise. Her team found that it can help remove from the brain toxic amyloid plaques involved in Alzheimer's. Ran and her colleagues have since founded the company Avum Therapeutics to commercialize irisin by mimicking the hormone in drugs or injecting it. Stanford University's Jonathan Long has also been studying the enzyme called adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase, or AMPK, which is also released in the body during exercise. While Long said the enzyme successfully lowered glucose levels in monkeys, it resulted in their hearts growing too large, which he said wasn't useful. Adam, thanks for the facts. Narrative A is our first spin coming from Big Think. The pharmaceutical industry is on a roll when it comes to innovation. The world will likely have to just wait a bit more before these extremely helpful drugs are available and can help conditions like Alzheimer's. But if the progress made in recent years continues, humans will be reaping unprecedented benefits. And Wired is going to follow that with a narrative B. It's too soon to tout the benefits of these types of treatments. The healthcare industry has to start holistically and comprehensively supporting people whose genetics have predispositions to complex conditions like Alzheimer's, cancer, depression, and heart disease. A simple exercise in a pill or injection may help, but it can't be the only tool in the toolkit. And we've got our final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 13.2% of U.S. adults will have diabetes type 1 and 2 in 2032.
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and then the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.